I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we are going to talk a little bit about the Catholic Worker and the Communist Party USA. Uh, surprisingly, I think we've talked more about the Catholic Worker than the CPUSA on this podcast, which is pretty bizarre, but we're going to talk about the bridge between them. Uh, some pretty interesting stuff going on there. But before we do that, a quick note, uh, a point of order here. We have a book club that starts on July 8th, uh, well, at least that week. Um, and we'll be going through the book this summer, uh, Communism in the Bible by Jose Maria Miranda. We talked a little bit about that book a while back for an episode, but we're going to go through it. It's really great. It's short. It's pretty simple. Um, it's profound, but it's not like bogged down with a ton of footnotes or anything. And it's interesting because it goes through biblical texts and tries to make some interesting points about communism. So it's super accessible and we're going to go through it together um, pretty casually week by week. You can get in on that book club at our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast and you have to give us two bucks and then you're in. Uh, anything else I should say about that, Matt? Yeah, Um it's going to be really cool. You should do it for sure. $2 and you get to read a book with us. Boy, who wouldn't <laughs> want that? It's like <laughs> me. me. I, w I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to not read a book with myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Other than that, um, uh, we'll be kind of organizing like a group Skype or Hangout or something um, later next week. So uh, go ahead and get the book. It's not very expensive. It's on Whiff and Stock for like $12. Uh, you could also buy it from Amazon, but don't. Um, yeah, just do it and, and uh, read it with us. It'll be fun. Okay. Yep. So now it's time for everyone's favorite part of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably. Uh, it's my favorite part. It's definitely my favorite part, too. I mean, I love communism. I love the Catholic worker. But what I really love is telling people uh, how to live their lives uh, on Reddit. <laughs> So, Dean, I got a big Reddit question here for you, and it's going to need all of your uh, theological brain power to answer. You're probably yeah, going to need I've been to... on vacation, so I, I've been storing it. Oh, I've good. got a lot. Yeah, get out your biblical concordance. Uh, get your copy of Left Behind so you can answer this question for this dang person on yeah, Reddit. Yeah, all, all the sacred texts are here. 
great. They're aligned in a row. Um, so this <laughs> this user asks on reddit.com slash r slash Christianity, what is your dream image in heaven? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think you can see where this is going already. Um, so here's, uh, they go on to say the, the following. If you could look any way you wanted to, what would you look like? I'm filling in some words here because there's definitely some uh, syntactical problems, but you get the yeah, idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm thinking real far, like race change, if you wanted to. Yikes. <laughs> um, then the user finishes this thought saying, I would look like Sora from Kingdom Hearts in heaven. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. here's the thing. In heaven, you get a new body. That's the thing about heaven that everyone loves. You don't have to worry about eating too many Cheetos or eating a lot of Whoppers. You just look however you want to in heaven. Unless you want to. Like, if if you want to worry about eating too many Cheetos, you can. Well, that's it. Because it wouldn't be heaven unless you could. Yeah. So um, everybody knows that. This user posits that you can look any way you want to in heaven uh, with your Mm -hmm. new body. Um, so they would want to look like from like Sora from Kingdom Hearts. So what would you choose, Dean, if you could look like anything in heaven? Or is this even possible theologically? Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely theologically possible. Uh, this side of heaven, it's hard to tell. I mean, once I cross over that uh, that sweet bridge onto the other side, I'll probably have just a wave of, of revelations of what I really do want to look like. But just on this side, I think... Uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of this right now, but probably like Mickey Mouse from Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, I think that is what I would want to look like. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that once yeah. you <laughs> once you get to heaven, you definitely <laughs> all your thoughts become way more Kingdom Hearts focused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we all know Kingdom Hearts is uh, has been beamed down as divine revelation. So <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I would pick uh, the Hamburglar from Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> yeah that's pretty good kid vid from kingdom hearts is my favorite <laughs> kingdom hearts character luigi maybe <laughs> not from kingdom hearts but just in i would like to look like luigi yeah yeah that sounds good i feel like i'm actually less concerned with how i would appear and more concerned with what kind of new superpowers i would get i want to pass through walls right. i want to fly around i want like all the powers you can have in second life uh, but but I want it to be my actual second life. Sort of a no clip mode, but for the world in heaven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's why they call it second life, afterlife. Uh huh. That's <laughs> that's why they call it that. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> we got that one answered. Um, you can look like whatever you want. Definitely, it, it probably will be a Kingdom Hearts character though. So um, start start your brain going in that direction, and um, when you die, you can look like Kingdom Hearts characters. We yeah, get it. on that grind right now. You can you can practice. You can start uh, ma- I've got... making like a collage of photos that you would <laughs> you could be buried with, and then when you're on the other side, you just show yeah. God the book. Yeah, you have to put them together like in uh, ancient Egyptian pyramids. You have to mummify the images of Kingdom Hearts characters if you want them uh, by your side. That's it. Um, all right, I've got one for you, Matt. Oh. Surprise, surprise. Uh, good. All right. Uh, so the the first question, the question itself is not so complex, but we get some good examples that fill it out. So the question is simply, is there any allowance of curse words? <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. We've dealt with this before in the podcast, and that's true. But I just want to kind of put these examples on the table. So the user goes on to say, what if my friend and OK, apologize uh (laughs) you should turn down the volume if you're in mixed company because i'm about to say a cuss i'm gonna mark this episode as explicit in itunes just so everyone knows (laughs) yeah 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 
Uh, what if my friend did something sick like doing a backflip and putting pants on at the same time? Am I allowed to say, that's fucking sick, man? Or is it considered a sin? Or what if I fall and break my arm and I scream, shit, is that a sin? So just a couple of uh, real-life situations where this this whole question really comes to a head. Uh, is there any allowance of curse words, Matt? How can we really determine uh, what situations is appropriate and which ones are not? Right, 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 right. So um, here is how I would answer this question, biblically speaking, in terms of the Bible and uh, theology. So if it's your friend that does a backflip and puts on pants, yes, it's a sin. You can't say the F word, the S word, um, you know, any of the words. It's just the um, G word. Yeah, they're, the J they're, word. they're not good. But here's the thing, though. If it's Jesus who does a backflip and then puts on pants, you can because now this is where it gets a little tricky and the Bible comes in. If you don't praise uh, Jesus, the rocks will will cry out. So in that sense, you do have to say <laughs> you have to say and they will cry curse. out with a chorus of, of F words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The rocks and the trees will be like, damn, Jesus. Great flip. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll sound worse because it'll sound like they're saying Jesus in the bad way, even though they're not. They're not, though. I mean, because like they have they're con- they're contractually obligated to, to cry out. So you got <laughs> to do compelled. it. It's a it's a cry horror. They don't want to <laughs> do it. They don't want to swear. But you're making them. Listen, their bodies are not made for that kind of thing. But if unless you do a curse <laughs> in that situation, they got to do it. Part of the yep, part of the them, divine plan. The rules. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I've read that before. Yep. Um, that's all I got. Uh, all the questions are basically, surprisingly, people are pro-cursing on the subreddit. No way, really? Believe, yeah, believe it or not. Um, we've got a nope saying bad words is not a sin. That's first. Uh, second, the Bible doesn't explicitly say using curse words is a sin. We've got that. Um, it's just rude. So, you know, I guess that's a different question. Uh, here's one. It's only a sin if you say it at someone to be malicious, but not if you mess up. So mm. messing up is fine. Okay. Um, uh, where yeah, were these people it. when we were being dragged on Twitter for being uh, cuss people, be, being part of the <laughs> cuss caucus? Because they could have come out for us at that point, but they didn't. They didn't. We won't forget it. We sure won't. Hey, you know what's better than this conversation? Um, talking about the Catholic Worker and also the Communist Party USA and how they're connected in some friendly ways. I think you're right. That's It's pretty fucking sick how cool they are connected. <laughs> that is that's very true now i feel very self-conscious about cursing because i feel like if you've done it then i don't want to overdo it you know (laughs) yeah but i also feel like if we're already uh if we've already signed this episode on as the cursing episode it's like you might as well lean into it yeah okay um i think it's freaking cool that the catholic worker and the communist party (laughs) usa were sort of friendly so here's oh sorry do you want to say another one no, no, I, I think I'm good. I think I'm full. I'm full of all the cusses. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> all right. Well, in uh, in past heckin' episodes, we've talked a little bit about the Catholic <laughs> Worker and Dorothy Day. You might remember when we said some uh, regrettable things about the Catholic Worker, and then when Joe and Brenna came on to set us straight. Uh, still appreciative of that. I love um, when people can tell me I'm wrong. Uh it's a great thing. You also might remember when we did Dorothy Day's Cuba blog, uh, where she found Fidel pretty good and found Cuba pretty all right as well. That was a good one. I like Dorothy Day um, now. Uh, but this week, we're I like gonna... Dorothy Day in Cuba specifically. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. She should do another tour. 
Um, you, um, yeah. So anyways, this week we're going to dig into some more of the Catholic worker history with a neat article called the Catholic worker communism and the communist party by Tom Cornell. Um, it was published in a journal called American Catholic studies. Love it. Uh, this is probably the only, uh, interesting article that I would like, but, uh, if you're like American Catholic studies, this is it for you. Um, so this article highlights a pretty neat history, but what's even cooler is that, uh, Tom Cornell himself is a Catholic worker and was present for some of the things that goes on in this article. Uh, if he wasn't present, if it happened, you know, before his time or whatever, he talks to people who were directly involved. So it's like, um, a real firsthand account, but sometimes secondhand account, <laughs> but pretty good. Um, <laughs> overall though, this article is like a history of the, you know, usually friendly exchange between the Catholic worker and the communist party USA in the 20th century. Um, which is a which is a history I did not know about, and now I feel better that I know it. I like it. I like knowing things. This history yeah. is um, pretty important to bring up, though, because I think it highlights a time when Christian leftists were actually pretty involved with the communists. Um, you know, against all odds, a friendship that no one would have, would ever expect, but here it is. Um, it's a cool history that just shows like the precedent uh, for Christians and communists working together, but in the U.S. this time, rather than you know in Germany or whatever we talked about in the past. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think to that conversational style, because Cornell was, you know, personally involved is really uh, a value for the article, because it's not like a dry collection of quotes and, and, you know, citations or whatever. But it's like, these are the things that a person actually experienced and went through and has a, an interesting perspective. I think that also kind of leads us to be able to ask further questions about some things that Cornell uh, says, or the way that he puts certain things and um, lets us get some other themes on the table. So hopefully that will go well, <laughs> but let's start out. Let's find out. Um, so right in the beginning, uh, Cornell is basically trying to dramatize this relationship, like you were just saying, Matt, between Christians and communists as a, a an unlikely story of friendship, but it's not that unlikely if you are part of it. Uh, that's kind of what he's trying to communicate. Um, and he starts out uh, with a really interesting paragraph saying this, all her long life after her conversion to Catholicism, Dorothy Day maintained that she owed her communist friends a debt of gratitude for opening her heart and mind to the poor and the workers' needs. And she said that, quote, they are atheists indeed who do not recognize the face of Christ in the poor, end quote. She found them more congenial than smug, complacent, self-satisfied Christians who cared only for their own interests, not that all or most Christians are like that. But Dorothy noted that St. Peter casts a wide net and that among the catch are many a blowfish and not a few sharks. <laughs> um, I love that. It's a really homey, homey line. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a couple of things to note as a background. If you don't know already, Dorothy Day, she's the person who founded the Catholic Worker, and that's what she's known for these days. But before she did that, she was quite close with the Communist Party, even writing as a journal uh, as a journalist for some of their magazines and newspapers. And she had close friends in the party, and she kind of hung around them. She was never a, a member of the party, per se, but she was a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, and many of the IWW folks kind of filtered into the Communist Party over time. So she's someone who's very involved in that scene, and she's familiar with them. And even though she doesn't kind of throw her, you know, her lot in with them, uh, she doesn't kind of lose them as friends or as influences. And I think that's a really interesting thing that Cornell draws us back to, you know, like you can't make a hard and fast division between one time she was palling around with communists and then she converted and she was just a Catholic who kind of like gave that stuff up. 
Uh, certainly there's a complicated relationship that happens after all of that, um, but it's not this kind of clean break. And I think that's a good way to kind of ease us in here. Yeah, totally. I think, um, okay, that's a good way to ease our way in. And I think what I would like to do now that we're easing is <laughs> to like double down or reemphasize the point that Dorothy Day was like in an important and meaningful way, like actually a communist. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the article, uh, the article kind of begins uh, laying out the relationship between um, like Day's early communist lifetime. Um, and uh, it just says this. She was, as she once wrote, a communist herself at one time. In fact, Dorothy Day was never a member of the Communist Party. What she meant was that she worked for a time for an organization controlled by the Communist Party. It was common usage to identify as a communist if one were in substantial agreement with a Communist Party program or worked for a party uh, front organization. Okay, so she wasn't a member of the Communist Party as such, but she was in accord with their, you know, she agreed enough with their uh, program that she would say she was a communist. So there. I don't know. It seems important to me <laughs> uh, to say that, <laughs> or at least it complicates the narrative of her life, just like you kind of said um, a minute ago. So there you go. She was an IWW member. She was a communist, and then she was Catholic and still a communist, but different. Uh, I don't know if she was still a communist when she became Catholic. I think that might be a... Hmm. You think that's too I'll much? i think more about it. I don't know. I don't know. Well... Because she establishes the Catholic Worker newspaper as a kind of direct response to the Daily Worker, the communist paper. Right. And it seems to me that she trades in her communism for Catholicism, or at least uh, Cornell says that that's what the communists sort of thought she was doing as well. Yeah. Um, maybe they were wrong, but uh, I, I could, yeah, I don't know. I could see that being the case. I guess to me, it, I mean, if she's not if she's not a communist as such, you know, like, fine. But also, it seems like she's still kind of a communist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, she's it's, clearly, like, stamped by it. Yeah. And it's the case that, like, she, they, she does have ideological differences with them. Uh, the CPUSA, for sure. Right? Like, that's, like, a huge part of why Catholic Worker probably was started. But at the same time, it's not like she disagrees with them um, about, like, why communism is important or something. Um, yeah, sure, sure. You know what I mean? Like, she, she doesn't go back and say, like, well... Um, you know, the like the the workers are the means of production is bad now or something, I guess. But mm -hmm. maybe that's yeah, too low that's of a bar. True. So maybe it's inexact to say that she was still a communist after she was a Catholic. But there's something going on there still. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's good. Um, well, that's maybe a good way to talk a little bit more about this relationship. Uh, Cornell goes on to say her old radical comrades would never understand her attraction to religion. And if she had to join a church, why the worst of them all? Because it's the biggest and most powerful and become a Catholic. The Communist Party claimed to be the vanguard of the working class. But wherever Day lived in Oakland, L.A., New Orleans, Chicago and New York and in Mexico, the workers and immigrants were to be found in the Catholic Church. That's where Dorothy wanted to be, too. But why join a church? As a communist, she explained, she knew we cannot struggle alone, but must join with others. So it has to be in a spiritual battle. We're not meant to travel alone. Uh, I think this is interesting. Cornell seems to be kind of suggesting something about the working class and Day's desire to convert as a result of solidarity or something. I think that is probably putting it a little too strongly, but it's probably fair that that's a piece of it. Or, you know, maybe at least she found that a more congenial way to uh, move from the Episcopal church that she had grown up into the Catholic church. Um, you know, who knows? I, not me. 
but in any case, it is an interesting point that she found within the Catholic Church not only a way of, of being in solidarity with them because of, uh, you know, they like went to mass at the same time or whatever, but like she was committed to being together with them in this kind of faith experience. And I think that's a pretty interesting point. Um, exactly how that relates to communists. I, I don't really know, uh, <laughs> but it's an interesting window onto her own understanding of her faith. Yeah. I think it's important to parse it out too, because you know, you don't want to say that Dorothy day became a Catholic because like, that's just where the workers were or whatever, because she was like an opportunist yeah. or something. Because, like, she actually believed in it. So that's an important piece. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that and, and also uh, you wouldn't want to say that communists were sort of alienated from the working class because they weren't Catholic or something, which would be disingenuous right. as well. Right. I mean, that's disingenuous. I mean, we've we've talked about the history of communists in the United States and North America, and that's not really been the case. So. Right. I mean, sometimes, but usually not. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well. Um, as a Catholic, she did a bunch of stuff like start the Catholic worker, but she was also a journalist, uh, notably for Commonweal and for America magazine. Dean, you're in good company, I guess. Hey, hey. That's true. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, she worked for those magazines and that's all pretty cool. Um, there's this kind of interesting tension though, that plays out as she's like, you know, living into this Catholic identity and being interested in the things that she's interested in. Um, there's like this one, uh, this one kind of narrative that comes out in this article where, uh, Dorothy day is watching like, uh, kind of a protest March, uh, in Washington. So uh, I'll kind of quote from the article here and talk through it a little bit about what's going on. Um, okay. So, uh, Dorothy's heart swelled with pride as she watched tens of thousands, men and women march bravely past Herbert Hoover's white house in the Capitol, demanding such radical innovations as unemployment compensation, and old age pensions. Not long before, World War I veterans had marched on Washington to petition for early payment of promised bonuses, only to be choked by tear gas and clubbed by soldiers on horseback. Dorothy wanted to be with them in the streets, but she could not, because she knew, as most of the marchers did not, that they were communist-led and that the Communist Party held that atheism was integral to scientific socialism, and that they hated, in particular, the Catholic Church. So she stood on the steps of a federal building there only to take notes. So this is kind of like a weird situation um, because like Day is excited about kind of the motivations of the march, but she's like kind of weird about it because it's communist led. Um, she can't give herself over to it because about, um, you know, the assumptions that she makes about atheism and communism when I don't think that the communists would have cared either way what she believed. But um, maybe they maybe they would have. I don't really know. But it's an interesting kind of development in the story of like the way that she thinks of herself as a Catholic and how she negotiates her, um, you know, her political um, uh, situation uh, in light of her kind of identity shift. Yeah, it's a really bizarre story, I think, because it's probably fair to say that a lot of members in the Communist Party would have viewed her conversion as a regression, right, as a, a yeah. move away from radicalism. And I can understand that and I can sympathize with her feeling uncomfortable with that. Like, that's fine. Uh, but a case like this is so, so weird because so th this is a march that was organized by the Communist Party, but uh, not in such a way that everybody's carrying Communist Party banners. Right. Uh, communists are smart enough to know that that's not really the best way to organize most of the time if you want to get anything done. Uh, and so ostensibly, like if she had gone down and joined the march, it's not like she would have become like 
transformed into a communist or something or <laughs> like it's not like all the people who were marching were therefore atheist and yeah. even committed to marxism or something and therefore hated catholicism or something uh so it's strange you know all we have here is sort of cornell's uh recollection of this event and i know that dorothy day has written quite a bit about it herself i haven't read it but so who knows? Like, I'd be curious to maybe go back and figure out more of what she thought about that event. But the way that he explains it here just seems so odd to me. Like, uh, I don't know. It's a pattern in, in Dorothy Day's thought about communism, especially at the beginning of The Catholic Worker, that really rubs me the wrong way, where she sees communists as, in some ways, motivated by these really good motivations, you know, to build a society for, for the many and for good for like the common good, etc. cetera. Uh, but she also thinks that communists are trying to like destroy everything that she loves. And like, ultimately what they want to do is like eliminate the church in the world. And I don't know, like maybe that's true of certain communists. Uh, no doubt about that, but it's not a very good reason to like not get on board with a bunch of people telling Herbert Hoover that they want to like address unemployment. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, the way that it's written in this article again, Maybe this isn't how Dorothy Day actually felt or whatever. You know, we could probably do some more historical research, but it seems like, I don't know, like it feeling that way at a, like a march kind of misses the point. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's idealism in the worst kind of way, uh, if that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Like, why wouldn't you, they don't care that, you know, you're a Catholic or whatever in the march. Like they just want you to walk around with them. But I don't know. Maybe there's more to the story that we just don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll put a pin in that one. Um, I think this is at least a good way to transition into some complications that the Catholic worker had with communist strategy even at the time. Uh, so we're kind of, I should say, I should just pause for a moment. Like we're bringing out some points of enmity between the two groups, um, but we will, I promise, come around to where they actually come together. Uh, it's just sort of good to set the stage for some of these early differences because I think it makes the, the friendship between the groups even more meaningful later on. Uh, but anyway. Um, Pressing play after that pause. Uh, Cornell says this. Communist enmity toward the Catholic worker was only reinforced when the Catholic worker refused to join the United Front. A communist party initiated effort to bring all progressive anti-capitalist and pro-labor organizations and movements together in one solid body to bring about the fundamental change they all saw as necessary and by any means necessary. Dorothy wrote in the pages of the Catholic worker that our movement would not cooperate because it would inevitably be controlled by the Communist Party and that the Catholic worker would not compromise its commitment to nonviolence, even in the class war. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Um, probably a few things that we could unpack. Uh, the first would be the United Front itself. Um, so maybe we should say something about that and then we can kind of come back to this decision and like what it means. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I don't know, Matt, do you want to introduce the United Front? Yeah, in brief? I'll, I'll do my best. Um, okay, so the United Front is um, like a piece of Leninist political strategy. It is like, if I re remember, um, if I remember my days from uh, Marxist Leninist school, uh, <laughs> I never went. Uh, but just if I do remember them <laughs> somehow, it's like uh, it's a suggestion that like Lenin made to the British Communist Party um to like kind of make like a big coalition around the labor party uh in uh the uk and that was like their way of 
uh, fighting against capitalism, you know, getting like a lot of people on board to this big thing that isn't necessarily like advertised in big flashing letters as communists, because that's, you know, sometimes not a popular thing for people. Um, but, you know, the idea was that that way you could um, at least lev start leveraging power and like, you know, the Communist Party would be involved in the negotiation of that power. Um, this is like what I mean, you know, it's a it's a it's a Marxist Leninist strategy and it's been tried all over the world. And sometimes it works out great and sometimes it doesn't so much. Um, or at least it didn't work out so great for the U.S. because, uh, well, as you can see, looking around you, um, if you live here, there's no labor party and we're not all communists. So uh, it didn't quite pan out. Uh, there's, I mean, a lot, like there's a lot of historical things going on there that we sh like can't just do. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but you can, I don't know, like there's a ton of things written out there about it. So if you are interested in the United Front and what went wrong or what didn't go quite as planned, uh, go check it all out. Yeah, but uh, the Catholic Worker, in this article at least, they didn't join for some like really interesting reasons. And I'm not really cool with the reasons they didn't. <laughs> I mean, that's obvious because I'm partial to one side. I'm actually partial to both sides here, but I think that the argument is, uh, I guess, kind of complicated. So uh, basically, Cornell says that they didn't join because it might. Um, so first of all, the communists would be in charge, and that was something that they were afraid of for some reasons. But the other reason was that that would kind of compromise their position on nonviolence. Um, and I think that's also an interesting reason to object. One that I don't necessarily find that compelling. But again, I'm partial to one side here uh, more than the other, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it is strange because by joining the United Front, they wouldn't just be abdicating their own say, which I think is a bit weird. Um you know, they certainly would have to find a way to negotiate with the Communist Party and many other groups as well. Uh, but the impression that at least Cornell communicates that, you know, if you join the United Front, then the communists just tell you what to do and you do it is not true uh, or or very good. Right. It wouldn't have been true at the time. Yeah, um, totally. I mean, so the the little bit I've read about the United Front, and again, let me emphasize it's like little, and then maybe I'm missing some of the nuance here, is that they were also trying to organize around a labor party but they were kind yeah. of like having a hard time agreeing on what exactly they should do. <laughs> I don't know. It's right. just it's just like on the one hand, you know, you have like this uh, Cornell paints this picture where it's like, well, if we join them then we have to listen to what <laughs> Moscow says or right. whatever. But then on the other hand, I don't know, in the accounts I read, they were like, I don't know, like we couldn't really figure out what to do with the Labor Party. So we didn't end up doing yeah. it. It didn't work out the right way. And I don't know. Uh, again, maybe that's painting the picture too loosely, but um, <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like there's some discrepancies in this history. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's <laughs> the weirdest thing is I can see Dorothy Day feeling this way <laughs> about the United Front. And yeah. that kind of is, is strange, though. It's encouraging that she she does sort of change her mind about these things like we've noted in the, the Cuba stuff um, and the other being nonviolence. Right. So uh, if you join the United Front, then you might have to compromise your stance on, on violence. And probably it would be true that you would have to find a way to support a diversity of tactics in a group that you are part of. Uh, that might be true, but you wouldn't necessarily have to, you know, it's not like the Catholic worker would then get conscripted into like the Communist Party army or something <laughs> like that's not how it works. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It seems weird. And Dorothy Day is endlessly frustrating to me sometimes when it comes to her judgment of other lefties. Uh, but maybe that's a good way to start bringing us around to where there are some sympathies and affinities. 
So all these conversations that we're talking about now are happening kind of during the Great Depression and then during the first and or excuse me, during the Second World War. Um, but after that, especially as the U.S. really turns up the heat on anti-communism at home, uh, the Catholic worker becomes a lot friendlier to the party. Um, and it's not like they weren't friends, but, you know, they, they, they become even more friendly, it seems to me. Um, so one of the significant moments here is in 1949, and Cornell says this, I'll just read what he says. Uh, the top leadership of the Communist Party USA had been tried and convicted under the Smith Act for conspiracy to advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government by force and violence. The Smith Act, by the way, if you haven't read about it, is important to know for labor history. It ruined a lot of things and was very bad. Uh, anyway, uh, lower level leadership, uh, Cornell goes on to say, was arrested and jailed pending trial. In 1957, the Supreme Court invalidated the section of the Smith Act under which the top communists had been imprisoned. So the remaining convicted and accused were released, but not before 140 had served as much as four years in prison. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, she was a prominent member of the IWW and a CPUSA member. She did two years. Dorothy Day visited her at Alderson Federal Prison for Women in West Virginia. Uh, I was in prison and you visited me. Cornell editorializes there, sort of saying that that was the, the Christian calling was to, uh, to visit them in prison. Um, I think it's really important to see this as the moment where the Catholic worker and the Communist Party are finding more and more ways to be in solidarity with one another. Uh, it's one where Dorothy Day kind of sympathized with the, the persecution of communists, I think, in an interesting way, probably not least because she had been one herself and the people that are being persecuted are people she actually knew. Um, like she was friends with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn before that happened. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll talk more about it, but I think it's important to just sort of note that seems to me anyway, to be a sort of transitional moment in the relationship. Yeah, totally. Um, if, uh, Dorothy Day was frustrating now, she's very cool and great. <laughs> yeah. The, the stories of her visiting people in prison are pretty touching and, um, you know, it's clear that she like actually feels for these people and is visiting them because she likes them and not just because, yeah. you know, I don't know, it would be the good thing to do or whatever. Um, yeah, there's like so many other people from the Communist Party who end up going to prison because of McCarthyism and it sucks. Um, it really freaking sucks, Dean. I don't like it at all. Um, <laughs> so she visited a bunch of other people in prison too, who are Communist Party USA members. Um, one that is notable that Cornell, uh, talks about in this, uh, article is a guy named Morton Sobel who served almost 18 years in maximum security prisons. Um, Many of those years, though, were at Alcatraz, which is particularly bad and terrible. So then uh, after Sobel was eventually released from prison, um, Robert Gilliam, one of the associate editors of The Catholic Worker, uh, got him to come speak at a meeting of The Catholic Worker after his release from prison in 1969. Um, at the time, Sobel was not really interested in talking to anybody, um, and he was always refusing invitations to speak. But uh, when The Catholic Worker asked, he said, I can't say no to Dorothy Day. When do you want me? <laughs> So, like, uh, it's, th this story is, like, fun, um, but it kind of shows a type of, you know, that Dorothy Day's solidarity had sort of earned her the respect of the communists. Um, Cornell goes on to say that the Catholic worker had even solicited funds for his defense. Um, so this is something that Sobel obviously remembers after he gets out. So it's like this this moment where Dorothy Day is, like, showing up for these people, and that's pretty cool. Um, even someone who was in, you know, um, maximum security prisons. So uh, Dorothy Day is a person who 
um, is clearly clearly very good and willing to visit communists in prison. But it's like kind of a uh, a demonstrative moment where the Catholic worker and the communist party, um, you know, like actually have some solidarity with one another, and that they're the the enmity that was expressed previously, I think, is kind of fading. Yeah, there's a really great illustration of that uh, coming together as well, um, where Cornell goes on to say right after what you were just talking about uh, something about his own story. Um, so Cornell went to prison. He doesn't say for what, um, but it says here, um, uh, Morton Sobel, um, his daughter gave my family a generous gift when I was sent to prison. Morton and I later shared a panel on prison reform or abolition. I had served five months in medium security, baby time, in jailhouse jargon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's the worst TV show. He seemed a likable man, but he told me that he made not one friend in all his time in the max. Uh, I think this is also a really touching story because there's this kind of shared camaraderie by virtue of both having gone to prison for presumably what they believe in. Um, and I think that it's interesting to see these two groups as, you know, they're both targeted by the American state. Uh, who knows exactly why, um, but they're finding these ways of not only expressing a shared spirit or whatever, but even material kinds of solidarity, right? Like, uh, soliciting funds for defense. Um, this idea of this communist giving a, uh, or his, the daughter of a communist giving a gift to the family of a Catholic worker because, you know, one of their family members is in jail is like very sweet and kind. Um, and I think that's like a beautiful kind of illustration of how these two movements are, are parallel for sure. Uh, but not sort of, you know, two solitudes or two like isolated groups just doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, I think that is exactly what it shows. And um, that's part of that that friendship, that legendary crossover that uh, no one has ever <laughs> attempted before. That's right. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the the American uh, leftist cinematic universe. <laughs> that's right. Uh, man. <laughs> OK, I was going to. No, <laughs> no, no superior jokes right now. I think that's <laughs> no, we're, we can't do that. So um, there's a lot of other stories, too, where Dorothy Day really like. Um, you know, shows up for people uh, in prison or uh, if if not shows up directly, kind of demonstrates uh, a type of solidarity with them. Another story that sticks out to me in Cornell's piece is um, this time when Dorothy Day wrote like really sympathetically of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg at their execution. Uh, if you don't know who Ethel mm -hmm. and Julius Rosenberg are, uh, you're missing out on a really big story in the history of the left in the United States. Uh, basically, they were Communist Party members. Um, uh, Julius was kind of like a spy for the Soviet Union, um, and they were both tried and they were both sentenced to death. And that sucks. Um, people were not super thrilled about that left. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Leftists were not super thrilled that they were, that they were sentenced <laughs> to death. Um, I think a lot of other people were pretty thrilled about it. Um, but yeah, yeah they, but even the Pope was not thrilled. Yeah, the, a, big deal. a very anti-communist Pope was not thrilled about it. So that's good, I guess. Yeah. Well, Dorothy Day uh, wrote some kind of like interesting reflections, some really sweet reflections and pretty heartbreaking ones, too, um, about their um, execution. So uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of them because they are uh, pretty telling of her um, her sympathy for them and also, I think, for her just overall demeanor about politics. Mm -hmm. uh, so Dorothy Day writes at eight o'clock on Friday, June 19th, the Rosenbergs began to go to their death. 
At eight o'clock, I put Nikki in the tub at my daughter's home. My heart was heavy as I soaked Nikki's dirty little legs, knowing that Ethel Rosenberg must have been thinking with all the yearning of her heart of her soon-to-be orphan children. I prayed for fortitude for both of them. Oh God, let them be strong. Take away all their fear from them. Let them be spared the suffering, at least the suffering of fear and trembling. And then she goes on to say a little bit further down, they were children of that race of which Mary and Jesus and Joseph, the Holy Family, belonged to. In their humanity, they more closely resembled Jesus than we do who are not Jews. For that too, we must love them. May their souls as well as the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace. There's a lot more that Dorothy Day says about uh, the Rosenbergs specifically, but this is her attitude about them, right? She like really fears for them. Um, she's praying for them. It's, I don't know, a pretty moving thing. And it sort of, I, I don't want to say this like demonstrates how she feels about communists because it's probably how she feels about people in general, but that she like takes time to actually focus on these people who are, um, you know, known communists and are getting dragged through the mud uh, in the media um, and are being put to death for it. Like she cares a lot. Yeah, it's a very like good illustration of how the personalism that's at the heart of the Catholic worker allows Dorothy Day and others to find a way of seeing people beyond their political ideologies. Like you were saying, it doesn't indicate that she's a communist, but uh, it does indicate her capacity for sympathizing with people who might feel differently about this or that thing. Um, even if she, you know, has like misgivings or whatever she's capable of kind of summoning some real like actual totally sincere and genuine uh, empathy and i think that is an amazing testament to her anyway and it's something that communists noticed uh like cornell says that this this kind of reflection and dorothy day's response to the rosenbergs was something that uh really helped communists come back around to the catholic worker as well um so that's important to note. Like, it's a good witness of how at least Christians should be with leftists, even if they don't agree with them. Yeah. Well, that's the hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, talking about the Rosenbergs is also a good time to talk about the Red Scare. Um, and Cornell talks quite a bit about it. So he kind of looks at the Red Scare as a moment in time, again, that draws the Catholic worker and the Communist Party together, saying this. During the Red Scare, fear paralyzed many people who might otherwise have raised their voices in defense of the U.S. constitutional rights of freedom of speech and association for all, including communists. But they hid. But among those who refused to be cowed, who agreed to support the civil rights of communists, to stand them with them in public were Catholic workers and members of the War Resisters League. Uh, and then he says something kind of funny um, that we can talk more about. <laughs> he says, uh, we did so not because we agreed with the Communist Party philosophy, but because we objected to breaking the seventh commandment, I think you might mean the eighth commandment, uh, but who knows, by the sins of calumny and detraction, and as Americans who value our constitution. So two things here kind of stick out to me anyway. The first is that he is kind of mustering up this vision of the Catholic worker as people who stand on the line for folks who are having their rights taken away from them, whether they agree or not. And I think that's cool and true and, and a very good thing. Uh, the other thing that stands out to me is this note about uh, Americans who value their constitution because uh, that is not actually what I think of when I think of the Catholic worker or Dorothy Day right. very much yeah, totally. uh, but <laughs> that's fine maybe uh, Cornell is into the constitution and that's his reason for doing this that's up to him I guess but it was a funny thing funny line to read anyway yeah yeah totally um, hey yeah but also the, it's not the seventh the seventh commandment is about stealing and the eighth commandment is the one about lying, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I think so. But it, it's confusing because nobody knows what order they go in. <laughs> it's a mystery. Well, maybe he got it goofed up. Maybe he's got a different <laughs> numbered list. <laughs> the Catholic Worker Commandments. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing overall, but I guess like, you know, whatever gets you to support communists. <laughs> not to be. Yeah, not to be exactly. It's good, though. I mean, I think it is. Um, it. It, it would have been super easy for them to not show up for them. Cause I mean, you know, during, during the red scare, like the communist party, the membership dropped so fast, right. They were like the, the thing you wanted to get away from as fast as you possibly could. Cause you might go to jail or whatever. Um, but they, uh, Hot potato politics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Catholic workers though, they stood, they stood with them. That's good. Yeah. It's also good because during the Red Scare, you could be sentenced to prison, not only for like being a communist, but just that people thought you were a communist. Right. So that's a good way to get yourself in trouble. Yeah, totally. Um, there's some other good stories about the Catholic worker not being bad, too. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of them. <laughs> hey, it's full of them, really. Yeah. Uh, there's another one that Cornell talks about where um, the Catholic worker was approached by the Ford Foundation, um, a pretty notorious, um, you know. <laughs> One of those foundations that are anti-communist for sure. <laughs> uh, philanthropic capitalists, basically. Um, but the <laughs> Ford Foundation offered the Catholic worker $65,000 uh, a year's budget in the early 1950s, and Dorothy Day refused it. So the foundation uh, funded a research project for the Fund for the Republic that proved definitively the existence of a blacklist with that money. They wanted to give some money to the Catholic worker, but then the Catholic worker said, no, good for them. Don't take their money. And then they did a weird project with it that exposed the blacklist existing, which I guess is good. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The blacklist against communists who can't work. Yeah, totally. Um, it's good to know that it exists. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, people denied that it exists, and it was affecting people's actual lives. Yeah, so. yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it is funny, though, that, like, they reject the offer of the money, and then the money actually goes on to, like, help the communists in a roundabout way anyway. Yeah, totally. Um. Here, okay, this is kind of a, a segue that I don't have a good way to get around to, but it's one of my favorite parts in the paper, and I want to get to it. Um, so I'm just going to assert it. Uh, so Cornell is often like talking about how the Communist Party actually does some good things despite their disagreements, and they kind of have like a really unique perspective. And there's this moment where he starts uh, complaining about Mike Harrington, and I love it a lot. So. If you don't know who Mike Harrington is, he's kind of like a legendary democratic socialist in the United States. Um, he was a founder of uh, DSOC, which would go on to be the eventually, you know, way down the line would give us DSA today. Um, he's kind of like a great grandfather of DSA, not the only one, but one. Uh, but anyway, Mike Harrington is really complicated because he is a democratic socialist. I don't know how else to put it, uh, but Cornell <laughs> Cornell illustrates <laughs> illustrates the problem right here. Uh, so he says, Mike Harrington and the Socialist Party supported the U.S. war in Vietnam almost as long as the Catholic bishops, <laughs> which is quite the... Uh, the insult. The Socialist Party endorsed the peace candidate, in quotes, George McGovern in the 68 presidential election, but did not explicitly condemn the war. The bishops declared the war in Vietnam to violate the just war principle of proportionality in 1972. Uh, and I love 
a Catholic worker throwing shade at Mike Harrington, especially because Harrington was part of the Catholic worker for a little while. Uh, and this is great because the implied connection here is Cornell's sort of suggesting like the Catholic worker and the communists both recognize that the Vietnam War was bad and dumb, uh, unlike Michael <laughs> Harrington. Yeah. <laughs> and I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the uh, the dark history of the DSA that no one's going to tell you about at the meeting. <laughs> that's right. Also, no one's going to tell you because no one cares about who Mike Harrington is. Yeah. Thankfully, really. <laughs> Thankfully, nobody cares. He's not the worst person, but like, definitely not the best. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Not. Um, there was this like really brief time uh, when the DSA was just getting popular again, though, when pe- where people were reading Michael Harrington and like quoting him like he was like Lenin or somebody. And it's like, well, yeah, don't right. do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> not all. Not all. I mean, the DSA is fine. Like, whatever. I don't have any yeah, problems yeah. with it. I'm just saying Michael Harrington, not my fave. Um <laughs> So we've got a lot of stuff out on the table here. The table's full of stuff. The plates got all kinds of that Catholic worker communist food on them. This is a bad metaphor, um, but I'm <laughs> a real banquet of information. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but here's the here's the dessert for it. Like, I hate this so much. <laughs> well, here's lay it on me, uh, Chef, Chef Bernica. Listen, this is the last paragraph. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> uh okay so then at the very end of the thing cornell says this this last kind of concluding idea and i'm gonna tell you about it right now it's not dessert it's not food it's just a thing that he wrote (laughs) so he says in conclusion (laughs) our differences remain the same catholic worker and communists and they are essential lenin insisted that after Karl marx that atheism is integral to the scientific socialism Individual communists may have religious beliefs and practice in private, but religion has no place in public life and ought to be discouraged. Peter Morin insisted that the privatization, the marginalization of religious belief, practice, and tradition is a fatal error for any society. Um, Marxism claims that struggle is the engine of history, class struggle. We hold that it is love. Love is the motor of history. So our differences remain, but we have become friends. That's what nonviolence does. It turns opponents into friends. Dean, what do you think about this big ice cream sandwich of a dessert paragraph here? <laughs> oh, boy, there's a lot of calories, uh, but I am happy to eat it. Um, yeah, okay. I like the end of it a lot, so I'll start there. Okay. And then I'll back up. Yeah. Uh, the end is really good that this this idea that nonviolence turns people into friends, and in this case with the Catholic worker and the Communist Party, this is a, an illustration of that point. Um, it's just a good image. And I think it's true. Historically, it seems to be true. I'm convinced by Cornell that that is the way that it happened from the perspective of the Catholic worker. I dig that. Um, I like reading this article as like the Catholic worker perspective on this relationship in particular. Um, and that's cool. The thing that I sort of don't like as much is the stuff that comes before that. Uh, the, the way that he tries to mark some of the differences that he says are essential, I think are kind of problematic, even if they're sort of understandable. So when he says that communists can have religious beliefs, but they have to be private, um, as opposed to, you know, Peter Morin, who said like privatization of religion is bad news. Uh, I think that's kind of a false binary. Um, certainly it's true that, you know, like we've talked about in this podcast before, uh, and as it's sort of laid out by Lenin and others, uh, what they don't want, what communists don't want, is you coming into a communist party meeting and being like, here are all the Catholic reasons I have to be a communist. Uh, 
nobody's interested in that. <laughs> it's not it's not helpful. Um, but it, I don't think that it's the case that uh, communism necessarily privatizes your religion. Um, it's certainly not the case in even communist countries that that is always what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I don't like that part. Uh, but the rest of it is fine. Um, you know, Marxism saying that the engine of history is class struggle, Catholic workers saying that the engine of history is love, you know, exactly what that difference kind of means. I don't know, but it's an intriguing kind of theoretical difference, I guess. Uh, and one that Cornell's is welcome to make. Yeah, I agree that it is a false binary or at least. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say it's a false binary. I'm not going to weaken that stance at all because I have 119 <laughs> episodes of a podcast to prove you wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I get the sentiment for sure, right? Like that is the assumption that communists are all scientific socialism and no religion or whatever. But like maybe maybe this is also a problem just of periodization too. like, right, maybe that would have sounded yeah. more true to us if we were communists and it was, you know, 19... 40 whatever um right but it's hard to it's hard to it's hard for me to see that or like really understand that as like a a really strong dividing factor like on the side of you know things like religious socialism or like the religion commission the cpusa or i mean every single thing that happened in like latin america like camilla torres or whatever you know it's it's hard to see that like hard um division between that it's just hard for me to think of of communism as something that is like necessarily atheistic. And like, I get that like a lot of people are and like, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. And I understand sort of the critique of religion. And I think that that critique is usually pretty good and sometimes not, but still it just like, doesn't, it doesn't like click in my brain that these two things need to be opposite of one another. Yeah, for sure. And you're probably right to say that thinking of this as a periodization is, is the way to go to sort of contextualize it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the thing that's difficult about this is that you can find communists who are like this and they're annoying and the worst, uh, <laughs> but they do exist. Uh, they're out there. I've met a few of them and that's no fun. But like in my own experience, hanging out with a real life communist party in Canada, uh, like pretty much everybody knows that I'm a Catholic. And anytime I'm at a communist party function, <laughs> if there's like... Uh, if someone like finds a weird theology book on their shelf or something or like on the street, they just like intentionally give it to me. Like they're not <laughs> discouraging my religious practice. Uh, in fact, I I should say one communist uh, friend of mine uh, went to Mexico not too long ago and uh, brought me back a book of uh, James Cone, God of the Oppressed. And he was like, oh, I just saw this at like a bookstore for like a buck. So I brought it and like it's so sweet and kind. And uh, in any case, it sort of gives a why. Maybe that's a generational difference. Who could say? Not me, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll leave that to others to figure out because <laughs> we can't. We can't adjudicate that. Yeah, for sure. Huh. What? a I don't know. It's just interesting. I I'm, maybe this is also I mean, maybe periodization. It's also an American thing, too. Like you can't just you can't get away from. Uh, religion in America either. I don't know. I just it seems such a weird yeah. thing for me to think about. Yeah, I sort of wonder, too, how much of this perspective here is based in what I think is kind of a wrong perspective that Dorothy Day holds about certain communists. Um, you know, I think that she has a, a picture of what communism necessarily is and has to be. And I just think that she's misguided on that uh, myself. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, oh, I was going to say, I wonder how some of this like hmm, I wonder how some of this would change like 
<laughs> before and after her trip to Cuba. Like maybe it wouldn't change a ton or something, but like it seems like there are some uh, generalities and some, you know, attitudes that she expresses in the in the Cuba blog that are a little bit more nuanced than like the the portrayal here. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Someone should write a dissertation about that. Dorothy Day's long, weird relationship to communism. The pre and post I mean, Dorothy Day Cuba blog dissertation. <laughs> yeah, that's a great title. That's what you'll call it. And you're, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the group of people that will be judging your dissertation. They'll be like, yep, this is great. We don't need to read any further. We know the quality of this work. Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. Okay, so now we have all of this history. We've we've eaten, we've supped at the table of this this history, and we're full. Indeed, my my belt is bursting. <laughs> oh, so full of food, it's gonna come out everywhere. Uh, what do we do with it? What does any of this history mean for us? I mean, like maybe there's some things we could say about self understanding as uh, Christians and communists or something, but I don't know. What does any of this matter? Do you think, Dean? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, what I think is so intriguing about this article in particular and what I like about it is that, like so many things we talk about on this podcast, it really complicates a situation that people think is simple. Um, so in this case, it does that in two directions, one being a story about the Catholic worker and its opposition to communism, which is, you know, like founded in certain things that are true, especially like we talked about in the beginning of the episode, uh, but is definitely not the whole story. And Cornell talks about so many more examples of how these two groups are together, even to the point where like some Communist Party members, when they died, they like left all their things to the Catholic worker. So, you know, it's like this is a these are two groups of people that are trying to be friends. And that's a story that doesn't usually get told. Uh, the other kind of side of it that I think is really useful is that it tells us more also about the Communist Party and how like they were also reaching out to groups like the Catholic Worker to try to build the Popular Front or the United Front. Um, and they also had a, a vested interest in maintaining friendships with other people who were also being targeted by the U.S. Uh, you know, war machine, capitalist machine. And I think that is like a really neat story, too, that gets embedded here. You get like a really intriguing angle on the the uh, Communist Party USA. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, Matt, what, what really sticks out to you? Yeah, I totally agree. The Communist Party USA history is the interesting thing to me. I mean, it's all interesting, but um, having gone to grad school and wrote my like my thesis on Marx, <laughs> it's so weird how <laughs> little I actually know about communist history in the United States. Um, I know a lot mm -hmm. about Europe and I can kind of tell you some stuff about Russia and like, well, I can tell you a lot about Italy and France, but um, it's interesting how like this part of the history of the left is something I just don't really know about for, I mean, probably some um, political and ideological reasons, but it's just a weird thing. It's a weird thing that's left out. And I think that there's some interesting things to think about when you're talking about organizing a, a mass movement uh, when it comes to these types of ideas, right? That you can't be exclusionary just because people believe something that's a little bit different than you or whatever. Um, so that seems important. It also strikes me too. I mean, just like of how, uh, you know, in the thirties, the twenties and the thirties before, you know, the cold war, well, before McCarthyism, I suppose, how just like much of a force to be reckoned with the communist party was. Um, I mean, yeah, it was well-funded because, you know, 
because Russia, but um, <laughs> I mean, like, so what? I guess it's just like, it's such a different world to think about. Like, what if the CPUSA was extremely well-funded and uh, had party discipline that could, you know, they just tell people to do things and they would start organizing. Uh, it's just a an interesting idea, um, an interesting yeah. thought experiment and to see how far we are from that kind of thing. Yeah, it is. No kidding. Yeah, encouraging, discouraging in some ways. I'm not trying uh, to throw very not neat. trying to throw shade at the CPUSA or whatever. I'm just saying it's like no, it's very course. different. I mean, it's not the CPUSA's fault that the Soviet Union fell either. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's Khrushchev's fault. <laughs> uh, man, getting full tanky on the podcast. <laughs> Real anti-revision powers. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that's actually true. If that's just uh, that's just a thing I've heard. <laughs> I'm not an expert on this. Is what I'm trying to say. That's just the thing I've heard. Is the ultimate description I think of uh, communist culture in the 21st century. That's just the thing I heard. Is like the main line of every communist podcast. <laughs> well, that's why we'll keep reading these historical articles. <laughs> yeah, we'll, until until somebody we'll comes and funds you- us. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Uh, but we'll give our listeners more things that they can say. That's the thing I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once, so we've heard it. It's a thing that we've heard. Now it's a thing that you've heard too. So that, <laughs> there must be something to it. <laughs> hey, um, if you like what you heard, if you like this thing that you just heard, and I know that you do, <laughs> you should support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you sign up now, you can uh, you can join our cool book club and you can hear things, but not from us, from a book. And that's really the good place to hear things from. Uh, cool. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash the Magnificast. Hey, Dean and I just remem- remembered today that we actually have a Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement. And there's a lot of people that were waiting to be approved for that group. And we did not know it because we're complete <laughs> idiots who don't use Facebook. So you're all in now and it's great. And you can join it too and be a person who waits in a list for a long time. Uh, that uh, is great. You could you could be that person. So join our Facebook group and talk to us about whatever you want and tell us things or don't. Um, cool. Hey, the music, uh, the intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. The outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week with uh, another episode of the Magnificast and also the Damnificast makes its triumphant return to the, your podcast listening. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.